Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us tonight at the Tattered Cover as we welcome author and critic John Lahr. Lahr's work has garnered him a Tony Award, National Books Critics Circle Award, and a Lambda Award. For Tennessee Williams, he was a finalist for the National Book Award. So we're so excited to welcome him to our store and hope you'll pick up a book to be autographed at the end of the reading and discussion. So without further ado, here's John Lahr. Thank you. Thank you for turning out. Um... And I'm told that the the drill here is 45 minutes and uh, then questions. So I hope you'll have some questions. Uh, uh, You know, when you grow up in the uh, household of a star, certain privileges accrue. Uh, You uh, get to watch uh, the Macy's Day Parade from Ethel Merman's house on Central Park West. Uh, You get to carry Buster Keaton's ukulele to the train station and pick up Groucho from the hotel. And your godfather is Eddie Foy Jr. of uh, the Seven Little Foys, who, when his wife threatened to leave him, nailed all her clothes to the floor. And um, so you learn fairly quickly growing up in a theatrical household like that, that the there was a great disparity between the public image of the, a performer and the private reality. And that conundrum is sort of stayed, stayed with me all uh, my life and figures in to the book we're here to talk about tonight, which is sort of my envoi to 21 years as the New Yorker's senior drama critic, uh, which is, I'm very proud to say, the longest run of any drama critic in the history of the magazine. Uh, My particular journey into this world was not expected. I never in a million years thought that I'd be standing up here uh, talking or describing myself to you as a theater historian and drama critic. I never had never had that notion ever until I was in my 20s. In fact, I didn't even know my father was an actor until he, I was about eight, and we were at uh, Mary Martin and Peter Pan, and we couldn't leave our seats so I could get ice cream because there was a line uh, next to Dad's seat literally all the way to the back wall um but the the thing dad uh, if any of you uh, uh, have read my my first book was on my father Uh, it was called notes on a county lion and i wrote it when i was 28 and uh it was reviewed on the front page of the sunday times and I was a made man after that. I could get work. I could uh, find work. Uh, and I sort of had a job, which was to be 
a drama expert, which I really wasn't at that time. I just had a very great interest in getting to know my father, who, had I not written that book, uh, I would never have known. Uh, my father was um, a sensational, great performer. Great. Uh, his range was extraordinary. He, he was, of course, he played in musical comedy with, um, uh, it, with Ethel Merman and all sorts of wonderful performers and was a star of musical comedy right up until the 60s. But he also uh, premiered Waiting for Godot on Broadway played Shakespeare, had an amazingly varied and interesting career. Uh, but he was also, as, sensationally, as sensational as he was uh, on stage, he was sensationally Saturnine off it, sort of unreachable, and therefore, from a child's point of view, unknowable. And, uh, you know, that's not to say that my sister, Jane, who was two years younger, and I didn't love him, we adored him, but uh, it's very strange when the person that you love is really two people. He's the performing self and the living self. And this conundrum, as I said, was something that uh, really at a rather early age started to interest me. Uh, not necessarily... I couldn't have articulated it the way I'm, I'm, I'm articulating it to you now, but that was the reality. Now, one of the, when, in a sense, Dad gave me, by letting me write his biography, which you think, when you think about it, I was 21 when I started, 28 when it was finished, he sort of gave me my start. And I, you know, the book is still in print, the, the legend of his theatrics and his heroism and his life lives on, as does his voice. So we're sort of quits. But so the, the, the love of the theater and the, 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 and, the, and the particular kind of criticism I write started when I started to write this biography. Because if I tell you, and, and I'm not lying, that you know over 50 years of, of, a, of a great career it, with a beloved uh, performer, uh, the amount of press that he had, the mounds of press, would fill this alcove to the ceiling. It was just enormous amount of ink was spent uh, on him. And of course, if you're a biographer, you have to wade through all this stuff and read it and assess it. And it was very extremely educational to do that and formative, and transformative, because it was terrible. It was dire. It was badly written, uh, generally only about what happened, not, what, not describing him, particularly in his uniqueness, but just giving you a, um, a summary of what the play was and who was in it. And more to the point, here was this extraordinarily complex and resonant figure in the, in the culture who um, had gone more or less unseen in the reports about him in his lifetime. Unseen. So he was, here, the conundrum was, he was famous, but unseen. 
visible to everyone, but really uh, unknown or, or not even approximated in the, in the writing. And that really was a revelation, because when I started the book, what I wanted to do, and really what the, being on The New Yorker has allowed me to do, is bear better witness to the life of the theater, to the lives of the people who are, in my view, sort of iconic or close to iconic uh, performers, and to try and treat these performers as, which they are. I mean, stars are their own greatest invention. And therefore, to a certain large extent, like the plays they're in, they're metaphors. And they are and should be interpreted. And nobody, because of the schism, which we can talk about later if you're interested, between the, really the difference between criticism and reviewing, what we have here in America is almost entirely reviewing. There's almost no criticism of any kind about theater or more or less anything. But that's another discussion, really, for, for, to stay on this point. Um, so what I started to write in the book, and I succeeded, I guess, in a crude way in the notes on Cowdery Line, was to write a kind of biography that I... I wanted to read, which I, I don't, what bio, it's a sort of debased form, theater biography, in the sense that it's all anecdotage. You go out, you throw a net, you talk to 10,000 people, you sort of get it all together, put it in a, in a scheme uh, or in a line, put a category around it, and publish it. And uh, that's not what I think a biography is. And it's not what I, I wanted. I, the anecdotage, uh, I wanted, I mean, of course, you need anecdotes. Uh, but anecdotes that reveal character, anecdotes that have an idea in them. And my, my notion was to try and make the theatricals and the theatrical experience mean more. And that is essentially the, di- the essential difference between a critic and a reviewer. A critic makes meaning and interprets. A reviewer... Uh, uh, you know, a reviewer uh, offers an opinion without interpretation. It was good, it was bad, three stars up, four, th- four thumbs down. That's all it is. And um, as a consequence, and especially increasingly in our culture now, with the decline of newspapers, with the, the lazy and misinformed and poorly researched uh, blogosphere, uh, Everybody can have an opinion, and it almost does. It's a bit like listening to the Republican debates. You know, fact does not matter. It's, you know, the strength of the opinion and the, 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 the persuasiveness, persuasiveness which, with, with which the snarkiness is delivered, which is all, all people talk about. I mean, I frankly don't care what uh, Farina said about Trump. But that, they didn't talk about policy. They didn't talk about ideas. But he's cut. He's cut above the eye. He's sinking in the bolt. It's a drama. Without, it's, a, it's, a, it's sensational without being penetrating, which is what I would say, uh, you know, uh, a lot of what, uh, the, what passes for theater writing is. Uh, anyway, it's my bias. Um, but the, the, the questions that living in a household, a theatrical raise, are the questions that 
bring me back to the people I'm, I'm writing about here. A New Yorker profile is really a mini-biography. Um, it takes about four months to write, uh, and it runs now about uh, 8,000 words. The first one I wrote, which was on Day Madna Average, in, uh, before I was on the New Yorker full-time, was um, 25,000 words. Um, and the things I'm really interested in are, and I can say, I can, I think it's fair to say that every, all writing is autobiographical, but I'm interested in looking really closely at the transition between the ordinary person and the extraordinary performer. I'm interested in seeing and trying to find the place in the performer that seeks expression. If you, I don't know, do you, any of you read Janet Malcolm? Well, Janet Malcolm doesn't think much of us biographers. And uh, she's an elegant writer. She's a colleague. And I think as good a writer as she is, is she's, she's quite wrong about biography. And her, her view is that anybody who is being interviewed is going to tell you the story that they, they, they should, they're going to narrate their story. It doesn't matter who is in front of them. They're, they've got a, a very, a very uh, worked-out narrative. And that's just not true. Uh, you, the story that you're getting, or you, you can get, you can, is, can, can be called out of someone by an intense exchange. And the better, very often, if you read a really good interview in The New Yorker, probably, or profile in the New Yorker. It's because the the person doing the interviewing has asked questions that draw something out of the person that perhaps they didn't even know until the uh, until the the question was asked. I mean, a good example I can point to is this week. If you read the New Yorker, you'll read a profile I wrote on Julianne Moore. Now when you, you you come to each person with a, with an idea, uh, a sympathy, uh, uh, an intuition, it's very in, intuitive. It's not like you, you somebody says, "Oh, go interview Pacino," or and you just go and ask him a hundred thousand questions just to get a story. I'm trying to interpret Pacino or Julianne, and so by the time I meet her. I will have seen the majority of her great movies. I will have read, if she's written a book, I will have read that. Uh, and I will have also read all the interviews, so I'll know what the official tale is. So when she talks to me and I hear that, that's not what I'm looking for or listening to. I'm listening to what she's showing me about herself, but not saying. And I'm trying to address that in my mind and find a way in to unlock something. And in Julianne's case, it turned out that the thing, and this is a good example, I looked where no one else looked. Uh, that is to say, I, I looked at her children's books. And she has a couple of autobiographical children's books called Freckle-Faced Strawberry, in which the, uh, Freckle-Faced Strawberry and the, bull, and the something bully. And the character of Julianne is protected by and and uh, she has a deep relationship with a monster. 
uh, who uh, who defends her, who uh, who banishes gravity, who uh, and protects her, and uh, that's her imagination. And it's something that she guards and treasures, and it's wild and and uh, unpredictable. And the first question I asked her was, "Tell me about your monster." She she sort of it threw her it really threw her and she she thanked me and she said gee that's I never heard that well no that's my job my job my job is to sort of go somewhere else it's to put on you know it's it, you all people think we all think we know Arthur Miller we all think we know Tony Kushner we all because we've seen the plays we've read the interviews in the papers and my job it seems to me my game. Uh, is in a sense, you know, if you go to the if you go to the um, optometrist and they're checking your eyes out, they drop those lenses, and that's my image. I'm trying to place another lens in the eyes of the, the spectator so that they can see more, more defining sense of who these people are and what the world uh, they come out of, and the, the intention here. Is when you see a play, you see usually see a play in the context of no context. You know, in other words, you don't see it as a continuum. You don't understand the relationship of what the themes in the play are to the life of the person who is writing that. And my, I really believe that knowing that stuff makes a difference to your appreciation of what you enjoy and that is as doctor famously my hero doctor johnson said is the purpose of criticism which is not to annihilate but to explore in so far, in a way that it adds to the wonder and the nature of the achievement of these things that mean so much to us and define our lives in some deep profound uh, and not exactly pinpointable way now for instance let's take death of a salesman Arthur Miller's centenary. Well, the first essay here is, recounts me going with Arthur Miller to his Connecticut <clears throat> to his Connecticut property, where, in 1946, <coughs> he um, he went up to with, with, having never ever built anything to build a cabin in the woods. And he had um, he had two lines in his mind. Uh, and I think the two lines were, "I've come home." You know, the two lines were, "Who's there?" and "I've come home," which are the two, I think are the first two lines of "Death of a Salesman." And we went to the place. We went to the cabin and saw it. And when he had finished that cabin, the day he had finished that cabin, with his tools still on the floor of the cabin, he sat down at, a, at the, the desk which he'd fashioned from a door, and he wrote the first act of Death of a Salesman. And he, when he was finished, he said, after about eight or nine hours of sitting there, he, he, he was crying. His eyes were burning. He'd been laughing, and he channeled the play. He channeled it. He was in a trance. Now, the point, what I'm trying to say is, if you know that, 
the world of the theater, the, the, the wonder of the creation, the kind of strange way characters inhabit, thank you very much, very much, uh, the way characters inhabit uh, and emerge. I mean, Tennessee uh, says that, you know, Tennessee had never seen a play by the time he decided to be a playwright. But being the hysteric that he was, he had all sorts of um, projections inside him. And people don't understand, although he tried to explain, that people are literally haunted by the voices of others that they carry inside them. As you all know, actually, because you talk to your parents all the time, uh, even if they're alive or dead, you've got, a, you've got a whole narrative going on all the time. Now, he, Williams said that, he, that wor- he was a poet, but that the words, he was bored by words alone. They weren't palpable. He wanted to see... He wanted to feel them, and he he said, I had a stage inside me. Now, that's true. That's what he had inside him. He had these warring projections that were sort of eating him alive from this mad family he was living in. Anyway, my point is that you, through knowing this, you come closer to the, the work. When I, I was hired in 1992 by Tina to just review, not to write profiles uh, uh, initially. I've written over 40 now. And she was bored by conventional uh, drama criticism, as was I. I think it's hidebound. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I wanted to do this other thing, which was, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, criticism is a performance, uh, and you are there to entertain with ideas and to to describe the world of the stage, but also, I felt, to give the theatricals a place in the culture where their ideas could be discussed. Nowadays, if, you, if, if the theatricals have any space in print, it's to discuss their lifestyles or their divorces or how much money they're earning. Nothing about the art, nothing about the nature of how the art is made, and, and therefore... Essentially, nothing, not, of no import whatsoever. And, the, and, and so, therefore, the, the, the theater which, and, the, and the world that the theater makes, which is to say almost every movie star that you cared to mention who, who's educated and trained in the theater, it, it diminishes. It, 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 there's no dialogue about it. Here you have a city, for instance, parenthesis, that is got an enormous theater. You have enormous theater complexes down in Colorado Springs and up in, in Boulder. And, uh, and, and no theater criticism, no discussion of the theater on any permanent basis. It, it is, it's awful that that would happen because people, if they're not, if they, if they're not in the discussion, they're, they're not in their minds. And if they're not in their minds, the, the 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 whole the wonderful literature of the theater the wonderful performers and all that energy and all that joy is not available they don't know the language they don't know the history they don't have any it has no mystery or juice for them and so I saw, I've taken it as my job because in a way autobiographically it is my tradition it's my heritage I don't want it to go away I want it to mean something to try to invest in the modern canon, because in this case, this book deals with virtually all the major, in my view, important writers who I've profiled over the years, Wally Shawn, Kushner, David Mamet, uh, Harold Pinter, um, uh, Arthur Miller, uh, and August Wilson, famously, importantly. Um, 
to bring you know to 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 to, to chronicle their their lives. And for instance, you know, when I started anyway, Tina wanted a. Um, we both agreed this is what what we're going to do a new kind of criticism. Yeah, and the first two reviews I did. Uh, were uh, one was a I went to Chicago to see a Clifford Odets play uh, that was I wanted to use the New Yorker as a bully pulpit for Odets who I think is grossly underrated and uh, also uh, for Williams and that resulted in a book um, and uh, so I the person who'd gotten me my job really was Richard Avedon who was the first hire uh, and he he was a great fan of mine and a good friend and he. Uh, he Tina hired me, but he said he called me up. And he said, "John, we have to have dinner." And I, so I had dinner, and he said, "Tina's not happy." And I thought, "Oh, what? Not happy? Why?" She said, "You're not doing the the thing you said you were going to do. You're not doing the insider thing." So the third play I saw. This is the third week of my job, and this is very interesting because it makes an interesting side point. You'll always read about critics, how they make theater. No. Critics are made by theater. Uh, They don't make anything uh, at all like that. Now, the third play I saw was the first performance of Angels in America when both, both, both parts of Angels in America were were performed in Los Angeles. So this review, um, the, the book, uh, Joyride, has uh, these profiles, but also my reviews of the artists I profiled. So you get the sense of the synergy between the, the act of biography and the act of critiquing them. And there's a difference. You see the way it works and how you take what is knowable and, you, and incorporate it or try to incorporate some of it in the discussion about the playwright. So here's how if you here's how it went. I, I the first thing I asked Tony standing outside the theater, because I know about theater people, is um, you have any uh, little private rituals before the opening? Is there a little magic? And he said, and he said, yeah, I do. I, I have to sing, uh, begin the begin from beginning to end without mistake. And then he had to go downtown and have a Chinese meal. But this being two plays, he had to have two Chinese meals. And he was also wearing a lucky charm, which I described. And so you saw Tony outside at the end of a five-year process talking to me about his rituals, his private rituals. We go in. We go into the theater. I describe who's there. I happen to be staying with the producer. um, And so I know that Tony has given him... Uh, a, a, a book of Melville's, and I know the inscription of the book uh, uh, to, uh, uh, that's in it, and that goes in. I review the play, which was, as you know, magnificent, and uh, probably, and, and, no, not probably, certainly the most important play, American opening since Glass Menagerie, and it absolutely changed the, the narrative and possibilities of the theater, just as Williams had planted the flag of beauty, uh, as Arthur Miller said, on the commercial theater. This was a play that did the same thing. It changed what playwrights thought was possible to do in the theater. It was both lyrical and political and 
uh, it was surreal. It just it just changed the whole narrative of storytelling. Huge uh, accomplishment, uh, extraordinary. And then after that, I went backstage and went in and saw in long shot Tony with the actors and read on the uh, on the bulletin board something Tony had written to the actors, which began, and how else could an angel be called down except with struggle? Well, beautiful, of course, great. He's a great writer. Now, what I'm saying is, if you want to know what that important play felt like, and if you want to be there, the privilege of The New Yorker and this type of criticism put you there. It's the only thing that will ever tell you or come as close as possible to being there with everyone. And it's a sort of, it performs a real, I think, a th- theatrical, historical point of view, uh, a service. But here's the thing. It breaks every single rule of uh, journalist criticism. You're not supposed to fraternize with the artists. You're not supposed to go backstage. You're not supposed to talk to anybody. You're supposed to only report what's under your nose and give an opinion. Now, it's my view, and it's really an issue in the little small world of drama criticism, getting ever smaller as the papers close. And uh, it's a very hidebound opinion. It's a, a failure of management, I think, really, uh, that really the really important good critics in the culture on both sides of the Atlantic did slept on both sides of the blanket. They wrote about the plays and they knew uh, the, the artists and knew the theater. So whether you want to talk about Shaw and Tynan and William Archer or you want to talk about Clerman, Brewstein, uh, Stark Young, or myself – the, they were in the theater. They knew what they were talking about. At the present time, virtually all of the people who the culture calls theater critics, I mean, the word critic has been hijacked. That's just as the word profile has been hijacked for any sort of ill-informed, gossipy thing. Um, the I've just lost my uh, my way there for a second. The uh, those people have not ever written a joke, have not ever written a play, have not acted or been in an acting class, have not uh, in any way absorbed the theater except from the reading room. And so, while it can be informed and energetic. At its best, it is. Uh, it, it really doesn't allow. It doesn't really speak from a point of command. Uh, and of course, you can be. You can also. It should be said. Speak from a point of command and be wrong. There, it, the, the point about criticism, good criticism, is that there's no right or wrong. There's just a good argument. And the, and the and the fact is that the better the argument, it should be. I mean, not in the Republican Party, unfortunately. It should be that you should be able to persuade by reason. Uh, but that doesn't seem, there's certain areas that it, that doesn't work. Now, when, I, to keep talking a little bit about profiles, when I, when I do a profile, a profile takes about four months. 
And I, I write, uh, when I pitch someone, uh, I, I say two things. I say there is no tabloid intention. And I say that, that profiles work on the same principle as good tailoring. The uh, more sittings, the better the fit. And it, it's, a, it's not worth a person doing it, or it's not worth their time or my time, if they aren't going to collaborate. And what that collaborates, collaboration entails, it doesn't always, it's not always immediately forthcoming. But once you've established in the first meeting with a, with a subject, once they can tell who you are, and in my case, mo- a good portion of, the, of, of my books precede me a bit. Not always, because not everybody is a reader there, but so that they sort of know what they're getting, and they know that whatever is said will be fact-checked, which is an extraordinary thing uh, at the magazine. Every word of this book or any book is going to go over with a kind of scrupulosity, if that's such a word, that that um, you would never believe. Uh, just amazing uh, amount of care is going on. That every fact, every quote uh, is, is, is gone over and, and changed, if it is not accurate. Uh, and I asked them for uh, a list of names that they would like, people that they would attest to their career and life and were crucial to them at various turning points. I asked for about four or five. And then I fill in with my own people that I know. But because I'm in the theater uh, and because I know a lot of these people over time, I have a lot of a, a, net, a large network to draw on. So, when you, if you're interviewing Al Pacino, for instance, nobody is going to talk to you about Al Pacino unless Al says, "Talk to this guy." They won't do it. it they, it's just not worth their life to do it because Pacino is box office. It might be their career. Never going to do it. So, it must come from the the subject. Having done that, uh, the when you read a profile and it seems seamless, what you don't, what the reader doesn't understand, but I understand, is you just can't call up Mike Nichols if you don't know Mike Nichols and ask him for a quote, or get Andre Gregory. You know that's where my my expertise and my life in the theater is a benefit. It's a benefit to the reader because you get the genius of these people contributing to the mosaic, but you take it for granted because you don't know that if you if you know if you're a, um, a local reporter, or even if you're on the Times, generally speaking, you're not necessarily going to get that kind of feedback. But it is the collection of these voices and observations toward a specific theme, not. I'm not like talking to them about, tell me what you know. Tell me anything funny that Mike Nichols... We're talking about a theme or something that I've intuited about the, the character that I, I'm looking at, that I want to um, dramatize. And I keep the questions circling around that particular area until the... the because it, it's not... I'm not altogether guessing. Until the until the um, subject comes forward. I have a couple of examples of that, which are sort of interesting. I I was having a tough time with Roseanne. 
who is strangely reminds me a lot of my father because she's absolutely aggressive and and ballsy on the screen and completely passive and almost inert off it. And um, she was, I remember she was sitting having her hair done before I got to write with it. I mean, they, one of the things I do, I, I do, you have to see the, one of the things you, agreements you make is you have to see the, your subject in three, on three different occasions in three different places. So you get a sense of a universe, a world, and, and the person in different places. That's agreed beforehand. So there's no argument about that. They have to deliver that. And that's, if they don't deliver that, we, it's a quit. It's a, it's, it, it doesn't go forward. Um, so Roseanne was doing. Well, I was getting nowhere, but I having, having I had written this book on my father, and uh, I, I and also a book on a playwright called Joe Orton uh, called Prick Up Your Ears, which was made into a movie. So I'd come to the fear. It was a very strong. And I, I'm going to argue this forever that, that that the basis of really great comedy was revenge and phallic revenge. Uh, and, you know, the, the great comedian has either actually got a cane, a cigar, uh, uh, something to poke or probe the world, or, or they are doing it symbolically. They always want to take, they want to put it to the audience. They want to drive them crazy. Uh, they want to take them for a tumble, right? And I was t- going on about this to Roseanne and talking about phallic fun. And she said, oh, you know, I've got way bigger penis than any man. I have a vagina, and men stole uh, the some. She went, She then she just lit up. She jumped up out of her chair, and she sort of adopted the female birth position, which is the stand-up comedian position, right? So she had this. She went. She, but it, it absolutely brought her to life, and it opened up the issue and the discussion of aggression and comedy, which she's she's you know all these uh, this really pisses me off. The the original assumption which you get in a lot of journalism about stars, that they're selfish narcissists and sort of, uh, you know, jerks. You know, anybody who has a major career and sustains it for more than, uh, you know, a minute is got to be cunning and smart as a whip, and, ro- and all of them are. They're not all articulate. They're not all college-educated. But in fact, in, in the comedian sense, if they're not college educated, they're better comedians usually, uh, because they they have not they have nothing else but their humor and their aggression to fly by. That's another discussion. Um, but anyway, that opened her up. And the other one was Mike Nichols. Now Nichols, who was a good friend of mine, I, I made a friend after doing this thing with him. One of the things about all these people, just like my father, they're famous, but when you when you face them with information and real curiosity about their process, their evolution, their struggles in certain areas, they're listen they're being heard and they're really being seen. And it's so interesting to me that they want to be seen, but they want to be seen in the right way. They want to be seen in a way that honors their endeavor. And being an actor is, a, you know, actors are actually athletes of the spirit. They, they want that understanding. And if you can communicate that to them, and you can because you can't fake it, they open up to you. Anyway, Nichols had waited for me because I had a few other people to write about before him. 
He wanted me to do it. He made he, because he's the smart was the smartest man on God's planet, and a superb, uh, I mean, a wonderful, eloquent uh, delivery. I mean, a purveyor of aplomb, uh, but also really, really smart uh, about actors. But so we, it was a wonderful experience for me and him. And he was telling me at the end of it, when we were sitting in his bedroom that um, he really enjoyed it. And I said, quite, I wasn't thinking about it, I said, yeah, I really do well with the inconsolable. And it was like, I felt like Tommy Cooper when he knocked out um, Muhammad Ali. I, I, I just had swung, I didn't, it wasn't a punch, I just, I just it, was a, it was just a shot that, knocked him back and his eyes his eyes sort of fluttered and he leaned back and then he sort of took about four beats and he said we get a lot done that was great and you know it was a sort of yeah gotcha that's where that's what I was going for I mean that's what that's where that's the source of all this compulsive need for output for to be in the public eye, to be in your mind. That's what I'm looking for, where that is, why that is. It it, it varies with the psychology of each person, but it's there. And in the end, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about the job in general was that to do it, I got to walk with Arthur Miller in the woods. I got to walk in Pittsburgh with August Wilson, and meet the drug addicts that he lived with, and see the places that he actually put on stage, and understand from his sister how he evolved into a poet. I got to write jokes with the Roseanne's uh, joke writers. Uh, uh, it it put me closer to the their world, and it allowed me to bring the readers closer to them. So that, you know, I actually believe that the, these kinds of performers are defining in the sense that they, they, we project on them and they define for us feelings that we don't always have words for. And that we, they become representatives of the moment that they are illuminating with their performing. So to look at them and interpret them shows us our culture in a way and and also legislates uh, a lot of what we feel about our life in other words we'll remember they're they're how we mark our time on earth you know i was there when i saw when this person sang when this person did that you know and they're the unelected legislators we won't remember scott walker or donald trump in 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 5 years but who's going to forget Marlon Brando, you know, or the Glass Menagerie, or you know Joe Turner come and gone, you know, not going to happen. That that's going to live, and and the music of our time is in, is is being played through those people and in those plays, and that's what, uh, you know, I lasted 21 years. The end of this book is a picture of my office. It was the happiest time of my life, writing life. It's beautiful. It was a joy, right? Over to you.
so I have some questions because I enjoy this. <laughs> yes, sir. That's a good question. Um, the question was, did I ever have a, a, an experience where, after all the research and effort, I didn't get the person? Uh, no, I, I've never had that entirely. But some people, you know, the title of the Julie, Julianne Moore piece, which my editor loved and I like, is The Sphinx Next Door. Some people are, won't, the, the whole point of Julianne, the whole point of my piece about Julianne Moore is that she protects and will not, she protects her own uh, imaginative experience, won't talk about her process, won't, but it's, it's, so her life is organized around protecting her work from the intrusions of the life around her. So that becomes the piece. But it's, you never, I mean, I'm, I would not standing up here and saying I've nailed them like I, but, I, but it's, an, it's like a brass rubbing. I'm one comes closer to defining the per, perimeters. I've had a situation once where, with David Mamet, which was a was a great piece, I loved the piece, and Mamet loved it in the end. He sent me a, I, I admired Mamet has the be- most beautiful writing room of anyone I've ever met. In the in, and he had a, I'm a fisherman, and he had a pike on painted on a paddle. And when I got back after his piece, he'd sent me. He had that painter paint two trout on a shingle, and sent it to me. And I thought, I almost cried. I thought, oh, my God, because he was a, a hell on wheels to do. It was impossible. He made my life a misery. Uh, and so I, one of the things that is so fascinating to me, I mean, it's an intuition I have, but it, I can, I, it, it proved to be true. I, what I wanted to know going in was how did Mamet's ear for dialogue, which is uncanny, evolve? Now, I knew that that had to take us back to something psychological in his family. Had to. So I, start, so I said, so tell me about your father, who he personally, as you would read in the profile, it's in there, he personally, he's Jewish, and you know, at the end of at a Jewish burial, you line up and each person throws a spade of earth in the coffin until the coffin is covered, right? Mamet personally, threw every piece of dirt on that coffin. He buried his father by himself. So his struggle with his father was humongous. And he learned to listen for threat. And he learned to, his acuteness for dialogue came from the fact that his lawyer father was persecuting and talking over the dinner table. And that ear for dialogue came from defending himself against the sort of verbal onslaughts of his father, who once um, put him on the ledge of the mantelpiece and held out his arms and said, jump. And Mamet jumped, and he took his arms away. And he said, never trust anybody. So you see, when you start asking the right questions, you get some amazing answers. But when the first time that I asked Mamet to talk about his father, he wouldn't talk to me. He said, no, I can't. I said, but David, you know, I'm here. We, you agreed. This is what we agreed to. And he said, I can't do it. And I turned off the tape and I said, then we're done. I'm, I'm going home. And the way we got around it was 
His sister told me about the father, but he wouldn't. But so that that kind of thing can happen. And I have to say, this is uh, this book is only about writers. I have I have maybe twenty profiles about and uh, that I like, but they're about actors. And I mean, I, the book would be. Uh, the size of the Funk and Wagels uh, dictionary or something, if it was otherwise. But the only way this works, you, you can't have intimacy without equality. That's the thing. So I come with my my own and the New Yorkers' prestige, and they have their prestige. The prestige, I want to remind you, it comes from the word etymologically comes from the word prestidigitation. Magic. I mean, it's a sleight of hand. So, I mean, isn't it? Uh, nonetheless, uh, that makes a certain kind of equality. So, it's not like it's not like the, uh, the 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 subject has to endure an interview with some schlub that's come with a pad. You know, we're, we're meeting as equals. And the minute you don't get that, you're never going to have a, a good profile because the person isn't really going to. Feel you, and very often, the way one gets the subject to talk is not by just—it's like fishing. I have to sometimes say, you know, in my life this happened, and I—I was in a situation where I lost this, or this happened to me, and then a correlative situation which I want the other person to comment on and that will bring the other person forward so you have to share your life in a way with them so it's a kind of curious curious kind of fishing for getting them into an area where they're not familiar about about going you know, I hope that answers your question sir uh, what you just said reminded me what Yeah. Uh, I have about four or five questions. But ask one. But <laughs> <laughs> it'll be kind of two part. And you're, you're kind of answering that. The interviewing techniques, the skills, what's one or two or three of the most important things. And also, the, the second part, the in, what, when you uh, listen to or see an interviewer on TV or on the radio, which one or interviewers do you really admire? I don't. Um, I don't really think about it. Um, the thing that me, I, I don't like it when the interviewer assumes that he's comparable to the star uh, in, in amperage. I think that's funny and bad. It makes for a bad interview. I think that the whole point of the job, and it, the only way it can be done, is to rent. Is actually to surrender yourself to the other entirely. Entirely, your job there is to feel not. Un, it's not like psychotherapy, but it, not unlike what an analyst does. You really are trying to read the other person and feel them, in you know, not just, not just um, get them to answer questions. You're really experiencing them. I'm, uh, if I can go on for a second or two more, but once I asked my father when I was writing the book, I was in the wings, and he went out. It was in a wonderful play called The Beauty Part by S.J. Perelman, which in 1963 was closed because of the strike. And he got a laugh on a preposition. And I, when he came off, I said, Dad, you know, how did you get a, how, how did you know that was funny? 
And here's what he said. I, I put it in the book. I didn't understand it for a decade. It's in there. But it, it, now I understand. He said, I listened to the audience, and they told me where the joke was. I mean, such was his communication, not with his family, but with the audience. I mean, he, he, he was that tuned into them. Now, when you really tune in to a subject, they tell you, they tell you where, their, where the wound is on some level. And, you know, you, you, you have to be tactful in calling it out and even describing it, but it's usually, it's there and it's powerful. The other, the other I was saying to, to Lisa uh, uh, tonight, the other thing, the practical thing about interviewing is I, when, I, I, when I finish a, a profile, I have a, a dossier of about a thousand pages of interviews of which I might use 1%. But I have it all, it's all that much. And I, so I can see the exchanges. And I'm reading the interviews and I think, oh, Lars, shut up. Shut up. Let the man talk. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing that very often in the enthusiasm that one has in joining the conversation, uh, I, and, it's, uh, and my wife sometimes says this, I interrupt uh, uh, and wanna, I want to. I want to let them know what I feel about what they're saying. But if you can tell yourself, no, no, shut up. Let them keep going. Let them. Let them keep on a roll here until they're finished. When the, the 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 idea is fully shaped, you know, it's very good. You know, to sort of listen uh, attentively, hover, as they say in analysis, but not uh, choose your time. To choose your time uh, to uh, come in. Another question? Sir? Um, do you have any hopefulness in terms of future criticism, future reviewing? Where are we going? You oh, oh, that's a really... I'm, 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 I mean, I, 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 no, I'm, I'm not the man to come to, I don't think. Um, you know, look, my job in the New Yorker, in, in the, you know, I live in both cultures, so there are some good reviewers out there who can see a play, convey what they're seeing, and at the same time, hint. They're not really get into a discussion, but they can hint because they only have 700 words or 1,000 words. Uh, who can hint it? I mean, uh, there's a guy on The Guardian called Michael Billington who's had the job forever, but is first rate. There's a guy called Michael Coveney who's very good. Uh, I think... Uh, I, the, but the New Yorker job is um, it's just the best job there is I mean because it's a living for a start and there are only about th three or four places in America where a critic can actually make a living wage now that they, they just aren't uh, they're, 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 and as the, as the theater uh, as the, as the um, papers decline uh, the answer is go to the blogs. There are 10,000 people with a snarky opinion that will pass, you know. And if you're only in... See, my argument is very simple. That is not criticism. You know, that, I don't know what that is, but it's not a discussion. It's a... The, the, the point of a critic is to look... Not just to look at the theater, but to look after it. And the thing about reviewers is that they only look after... Their job is to look after their audience. It's only a market research function. And, uh, you know, that will go on, but I don't have very much hope for the... Because for the... many of the bloggers are actors, and they're, 
say wonderful things because they don't want, they may be on stage with them at, at some point in the future. It seems that they're, they're too inside. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't read those people, so I'm not even aware that they're blogging in any real way. Uh, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in having a discussion that's wider than the event under discussion. I want to have that discussion, but I want to tease it out further. Uh, you know, I guess the blogosphere will come in. There'll be another way. But there's certainly not going to be a way in print form, I don't think. I, I just don't I, – I, I'm pretty – you see, just to say one other thing, the, the critics that we seem to – that seem to have a shelf life, somebody like Tynan, who's a, who's a great stylist, you know, um, you have – part of the job if you're performing with ideas is you have to – well, as, as Duke Ellington says, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing – and, and, and I'm afraid that they're not really people who actually, they type, but they don't write. You know what I'm saying? Uh, no, you've had, let me ask you. Okay. Well, well, great, I'm here. I have nothing to do. Well, let me, you, and then I'll come to you, sir. Go ahead. <laughs> well, is this tape running or not? <laughs> what? You, what? Oh, I'm sorry. He 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 wanted to be asking me about Frank Rich. Let let me put it this way: uh, I was hired to take the argument away from the Times, and Frank Rich retired after a year. Uh, and he was he was more vigorous, and I and, and I, he was more vigorous, and he had, you know, he was you know I, I think he did the job well. The difficulty I think is if you take any, if you define yourself and enjoy defining yourself as the butcher of Broadway. I think that says it all. Sir. I asked you this question earlier today, and your answer was so informative. I'm Michael, is that you out there? Oh. <laughs> you asked the same question again. So that's going. Please tell us what's in your mind when you're writing a review or a critique. Who do you have in your mind that well, as I said at the time, uh, I'll, and I'll give you somewhat a similar, similar answer. If you ask a reviewer who he's writing for, he will always say, because it's the true, he's writing for his readers and uh, his audience. And of course, I'm writing for my readers too, but my first allegiance, when I'm thinking, when I'm sitting down there, I'm writing for the people in the play. I want to reflect back what they say and uh, what they've done. I want to make sure that they know that they've been seen. And if I don't like the, what, what I see, I want to couch it in such a way that I can be discerning but not annihilating. Um, th there's a, unfortunately, it's an adjunct of the general decline in criticism that, and, and this has been, uh, uh, I think, uh, multiplied by uh, the snark on the, the web, it, because you have to get people's attention. So the easiest way to do that is to be bitchy or say something outrageous. The, the thing I always, the first, the first principle, in my first principle, is that criticism is a life without risk. All you do is risk your opinion. The people who are making something, if you ever made anything, a book, a play, a poem, that takes an enormous amount of time and commitment and care and Therefore, if you've made something and you are also writing about something, you watch your language. 
and there's a certain humility in the undertaking. If you've never made anything, you can talk the way people like John Simon talk. Uh, you know, because uh, they have no, they haven't got a creative bone in their body. Uh, they just have, a, you know, they have a, a word hoard, and they're educated, so they can sound. Uh, they can have, they can trust their taste, you know. But that's a, a dilemma, uh, sir. Sure. If you run into just uh, almost a dichotomy in the way they see the person, I'm asking them. Um, I'm never asking them a global question. You see, I'm asking them to. Uh, I'm, I'm leading them to the theme that I am trying to explore. So let's take for the, because it's in the in the magazine this week. Let's take Julianne's imagination. Uh, I'll be talking to them about Julie's imagination. And one of the things that comes out of that profile, which I think is news from the nature of our discussion, the thing about Julianne's performances is that they're incredibly penetrating but succinct. She's very, very modulated as a performer and very knowing. But what she says is fascinating because she says that she just doesn't only have an emotional imagination, she has a visual one. So she understands, so the thing that is modifying her performance is is not an express, just an expressive one, and, uh, like her, what she's feeling about the character. She's understanding how she is being perceived in the camera and what the idiom of the of the shot means. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with her performance, but where she is in the screen. And that that's a sort of amazing thing to be to talk about because it's it, it goes it, it adds a whole other layer of prowess which is not to do just with uh, uh, emotional stuff. Yeah, it's a completely other skill. And and the film directors talk to me about that. And that, and, and then you get an anecdote about how she adjusted the camera or wouldn't allow a certain kind of shot because, not because of nudity or anything, but but because of how it changed the emphasis of the character, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay, you want me to get off? One more. Okay, all right. Uh, no, I think I think that uh, everybody performs. Uh, everybody performs. Every everybody has a mask. That's what the word personality means. Persona, mask. And uh, if you don't think that playwrights are crazy uh, and and uh, and transgressive, uh, you know, talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you some stories. Anyway, thank you for turning out, guys. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.